4: Hello and welcome to A Musical Journey Like No Other, giving you an in-depth, invigorating, and exclusive look at the newest Smashing Pumpkins concept album, Autumn. This is 33 with William Patrick Corgan, and this is the 25th step on our interstellar musical expedition. As a reminder, we're now a few songs into Act 3. You can stream songs from Acts 1 and 2 on your favorite streaming services right now. If it's your first time listening to 33, welcome. If you've been with us since the very beginning, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being fans. On this episode, we're having another world premiere of a song from the album Autumn. We'll be listening to and analyzing the track The Canary Trainer with Smashing Pumpkins frontman Billy Corgan. On this episode, we're also going back to 1995 and listening to a song titled An Ode to No One, which you may know by another title, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later. Of course, that comes off the Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness album. And, of course, we've got a lot more to talk about. Mi amigo Kyle Davis está listo para a la fiesta en Ciudad de México. ¡Órale! That's right, Kyle Davis. We're heading to Mexico. World is Vampire Festival this Saturday. Of course, Smashing Pumpkins is headlining tons of great music. The NWA versus AAA professional wrestling event. Details, nwatix.com. It's going to be fun. Two months
5: ago, I promised myself I would learned Spanish, and it turns out I have no idea what you just said to me. But happy end of February. We're almost there. Mexico City coming right up. You know what else is coming up? April 21st, autumn release date, hurriedly approaching. Of course, World is a Vampire, not only in Mexico, it's happening April 15th and 30th in Australia. One continent, 10 days, 15 days. Smashing Pumpkins joined, Jane's Addiction, Meal on the Sniffers, Red Hook, and more. Also make sure you're liking, subscribe, share, rate, review, all the things we talk about on a weekly basis. Keep doing what you're doing. It's working. iTunes, Spotify, iHeart app, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you go over to WPC33.com. Continue that conversation. Billy, 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 can't you see sometimes the words just hypnotize me. What are you going to share with us today? What's your world like? Let's do this damn thing.
6: Well, Kyle, your um your yearning to learn Spanish reminded me of my yearning to learn Latin. So that's sort of where you and I diverge. Um kay? you want to learn a romantic language of the world. And I want to learn a dead language that no one speaks anymore,
4: (laughs) but it's still a romantic language. I think it still falls under that category. They're all based in Latin. So once you have the Latin, that's how it was tried to convince to me when I was in Catholic school is you should learn Latin because it's the basis for all of the other basic European, you know, not all of them, but you know, Italian, Spanish, English, all that sort of, you you get a knuckles with a ruler too. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Believe me, those nuns, (laughs) they were something else.
6: You learn in your travels with the erudite, who actually did learn Latin, they all kind of get misty-eyed when they talk about being able to read in Latin. So that's always kind of tugged at my heart. So we'll put that on the checklist of things that I'm still hoping to get to, including archiving my voluminous vinyl library of music. Back to Autumn, <laughs> the never-ending concept record. No less than Charles Fleischer, a good friend and a former guest of the podcast, texted me last night and said... I don't think anyone's ever attempted anything like this uh, size and scope of this record. And I said, yeah, I think I think you're right. I could be wrong, but it feels that way. Certainly when I did Melancholy, which was 28 songs, I thought I was kind of competing with things like The Wall. And then I went back and realized The Wall was only about 18 songs. So I think I've, so we're going to quadruple things. To the story, because that's the pertinent thing we're here for, is to keep moving along. Last we remembered, Shiny came out of the spaceship after 20 years in, Cybernation, yeah, that was a play on words. If you I like that,
4: Cybernation T-shirt right there,
6: and that also kind of pokes to my other forgotten autumn song, Alienation, which you can find in Volume One, Shiny, No oh So Bright. Plug, no it. past, no future, no sun. I believe is the title. Yeah, so here we are. Shiny comes out of the ship after his Cybernation. He comes down. He gets the full fascist salute from the government. He's back. Oh my god. So where do we go next in the little movie in uh, in part three of Act Three? 33. Oh my God. There is Osira, hidden in the crowd in disguise, watching the proceedings and her heart is absolutely breaking that this man that she pinned her hopes on to be truly the revolutionary figure that she assumed he was by getting to know shiny, pure consciousness through Ruby the robot. She realizes, wait, there's this 55 year old guy who's long past his due date on being a rebel. And instead of standing up in front of an open microphone in front of the world and saying the one thing that an artist like this could say, which would cleave the society in half and institute the revolutionary change that she and many of her generation are after and said he takes a pass because he's more into self-preservation than being a sacrificial lamb. Once more, uh, by the way, not anew, um, once more, he's already been a sacrificial lamb, he's already suffered, but that doesn't mean anything to her. He's standing there, he has an open mic, he takes a whiff. So song three on act three is Osiris song. And before we get into the subtext of this, I'd like to give a little detail. Cause sometimes I feel like in trying to get to the story and, and the meaning of the record, we sometimes gloss over the fun stuff of how this record was made. Originally there was a song in this spot called X-Ray and looking at my notes uh, before we started the podcast today, I realized that this was one of the rare songs that I replaced midstream. So there was a song called X-Ray that was in this spot and I nixed X-Ray into oblivion, never to be heard again. So, along comes a song called The Canary Trainer, which rose out of the ashes of X Ray. And then I'm going to admit to something that I only admit to not because I'm proud of it, but because it's sort of it's the contrivance of the modern world. So, I originally wrote the song, I believe, in the key of A minor or A major, one of those, but A. And if you know my voice at all, F sharp's a high note for me, but I can sing it. If you think of uh, Stand Inside Your Love, who wouldn't? That's an F. And then songs like Rock in E that's up there, but then if I go for the high notes, that's uh, A flat. I'm speaking for musicians now. Point being is that when you get up in a key like A and you're hitting notes like E and F sharp consistently in the melody, it's a pretty hard strain on the voice. But we recorded the song in in A, and uh, Howard being Howard, of course, you know, would make the frowny face anytime I would suggest that we down key the song. So we recorded the whole thing in A, and here we go, we're finally gonna record the vocal of what is now the Canary Trainer. I've got the words all written, it's a beautiful song. And I get about one verse and I go, there's no way I can sing this song. It's just too high. And Howard makes the really big frowny face, which is telling you we got a big problem. And um, I'm like, look, it's just, there comes a point where I, can I hit every note and you can kind of, you know, comp it all together. Comping for those who don't know is where you just sing a bunch of vocals and then you kind of take, you know, a sentence here and a sentence there and you kind of glom it together in a pastiche and you get an idealized vocal take. What most people do these days is they they sing a few takes, really not as many as we would sing back in the day, four or five, six takes the producer or the editor would would do a comp to get rid of those things, and then they just run the heck out of it through Pro Tools, you know, Melodyne and whatever, and they just fix the vocals. And so singers think they've done a great job because what comes back is a perfect vocal. That's not the way I work. I work more old school, and we, uh, by and large, do not rely on pitch shifting to uh, make my vocals work. So if you hear me singing pitchy, that's me. (laughs) It's not the uh, Melodyne. Anyway, so um, we go through this big discussion, and we make the decision, okay, we're going to have to down-key the song, but we've already spent you know, days and days recording this song. So we make the decision, which you can do uh, with modern technology to, you know, set the whole pitch part of the song through the machinery and it'll come back half step down. It sounds a little weird, but you have to listen really close to note it. So we go down a half a step. Okay. I come in the next day. I'm going to sing the song. I go to sing the song. I tell Howard after singing about one verse is still too high. We go through this process three more times. Now, every time we downgrade the song, it gets a little furrier and weirder sounding. So it almost sounds a little alien. And I don't want to say robotic, but that's the word of the day. Cold, there's a coldness to it. But somehow in all the down keying and the messing around with the track, the track took on this other dusky, surreal ambiance, which actually at the end of the day fed into the atmosphere that I was after, which is a young person being extremely disappointed in someone they've set up as a hero. Now remember, because it bears repeating, osiris never met shiny shiny the real human being is standing in front of her on a stage under a bunch of klieg lights and she's super disappointed in someone she's never met because in her mind she thinks she knows shiny because she's met shiny pure consciousness shiny and wouldn't we all like to be pure like shiny in the robot so she's super disappointed in the human and she's made the decision that her heart is broken and he's blown it all so that's what this song's about contextually go ahead now
5: so the title itself, because we're always going to play the fun game, what does Kyle think is going to happen ahead of time? Canary trainer. I think two things with canary. I think a canary sings. And I think a canary can also be a telltale sign that something is very wrong because the canary is going to die is the first sign that that's not a livable atmosphere. So when I see canary trainer, I think either they're training someone in this point to be the telltale sign that everything is bad, even though it looks great danger. This is not something that's safe or They're trying to train somebody to be the voice for an entire generation and just by this is what you're going to say, this is what you're going to repeat, this is the message we want you to put out there.
6: You're pretty close. Not all the way there. I have a slightly darker and more ominous take, and it does riff back. Darker? You? No. (laughs) I'm smiling. You can't see me smiling. Uh, (laughs) I don't know what the sound of a smile is. like. (laughs) Um,
4: (laughs) Depends what cartoons you're watching.
6: Here's what I would call self-reverentially classic Smashing Pumpkins slash WPC insider humor. One of my most famous songs is, despite all my rage, I'm still just a rat in the cage. So this is a different cage. And by the way, we're talking about the same person who sang the rat in the cage song. Back in the day, there used to be, and there may still be in certain Eastern parts of the world, canary trainers. The idea being that you take your canary to someone and they will train your canary to sing. So if you think of it from my perspective, after so many years in show business, I understand quite acutely the pressures of feeling like I'm caged by certain situations. And then somebody puts a spotlight at me and it's like, dance, go. Now's the time. Time is money. You only have to stand on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno or a David Letterman show, Dick Clark shows. I mean, all these shows I did in the 90s into the 2000s, and thankfully I'm still on those shows, to know what it feels like to be suddenly in the set of a show that you've watched or grown up watching. Like in the case of the Tonight Show, I'm literally standing, you know, where Johnny Carson used to stand and give the monologues, and boom, the lights hit, and it's like, "Here's your three minutes, go." It's a weird feeling. So, I'm trained to be the canary that sings on cue. In this case, Osira has an expectation that the canary she expects Shiny to be will sing when the light hits him, and he doesn't. So she's super disappointed in her version of the canary. So it's a play on the idea of bullet with butterfly wings, rat in the cage, but it's also a play on the idea that even to this day, after 35 years in showbiz, I still meet people with great routine and not just in music, but also in wrestling who expect me to act in a particular way because they, given the information that they've received either through media, watching videos, listening to music, they kind of have a story in their mind of how I will behave. And if I don't behave that way, it's a problem. And I'll give you a really, really quick example, which happened to me the other day at Disney World At all, I'm walking down the uh, street of Disney Springs. If you know, that's just basically a tourist trap where they have a bunch of stores. Uh, we were fried. We'd spent four days in a row at the park. So we decided as a family, and to my kid's credit, they were like, we're done with the parks too. So we just decided to have a lazy day and go shopping. And because there's a Lego store there, which is my kid's favorite store, and we decided to go over to Disney Springs. So we're walking, and as we're walking, I think four young women, maybe in their mid thirties, stop us and say, are you Billy? Yes. And um, they're like, oh, we're from, they live in the next town over from where I live in uh, North of Chicago. It's like, great, you know, nice to see you. Oh, we've been in your TLs. Oh, awesome, you know? And so we have a nice, you know, 60 second chat. And then as I'm about to go, I see them kind of making that gesture, like here come the phones. And they say, can we take a picture? And I literally, I had both my kids in my hands, you know, like by their hands. And I held my kids' hands up, like kind of not a good time. And they were like, huh? And I was like, it's not a good time. I'm with my kids, you know? And by the way, what people don't understand with a situation like that is it's not just taking the picture for them. It's the minute you attract attention to yourself. Now it's a conga line of people coming and you're meeting people who don't even know who you are. And they're asking who you are as they're taking the picture because they realize you're somebody. So they're just going to take the picture. I don't want to say the ladies were offended, I don't want to read minds, but they certainly weren't happy with my saying no. And that's a perfect example. However, small of that's every day of my life, I'm dealing with people's expectations and whether you want to go meta on it, which is, you know, rat in the cage, hit the lights, did Clark standing there, you know, you got three minutes on national television or young Osiris looking at shiny. Who's by the way, just stepped out of a spaceship. He doesn't even know what the heck's going on. And she's so built this story up that Shiny's going to be the savior of her world. And we've all been in that spot as young people where we kind of decide the world it should be, not the world it is. The world we eventually figure out is going is to go on with or without us. But when we're young, we think we have some sort of deeper say in that. And you could certainly argue that's a worthy perspective and it is helpful. And I have praised that perspective. But in this particular instance, this young person's projecting on Shiny, uh, you got to be this certain way, you got to do this certain thing. And the minute Shiny doesn't do it, now she's disappointed. So the canary trainer leans heavily into osiris disappointment
4: i think that's a good note for us to go out. And let's uh take a quick break here when we come back you'll be listening to the world premiere of the canary trainer right here on 33 with william patrick organ
5: now available for pre-order at MadamZuzu's.com. the autographed 4 lp box set of autumn the new album by the smashing pumpkin this 4 lp colored vinyl pressing is limited to 1333 units and will be machine-numbered and autographed by the Smashing Pumpkins, Billy Corrigan, Jimmy Chamberlain, James Eha, and Jeff Schroeder. The limited edition box set includes the three-act, 33-song rock opera that is autumn, and ten exclusive unreleased songs over the course of five seven-inch singles that will not be available for streaming or found anywhere else. Go to MadamZuzu.com to pre-order today. Free shipping in the USA, three-unit limit for order. Pre-order will ship after April 21st, 2023.
7: Go to Nix.com. That's K-N-I-X.com.
2: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
3: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great.
2: Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list.
3: We'll also have guests join us Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: Despite all my rage, I'm still just a canary in a cage.
6: Free. Free here on the podcast. Normally I charge for that. The Canary Trainer. It's funny because sometimes I wish I could just open my mind and let you see the emotional response I have to certain things. The Canary Trainer is one of my favorite sort of songs. And and I say that often, but it's hard sometimes to delineate what that means. When I say it's one of my favorite songs, I mean, it's one of my songs that I love. And I don't really care if anybody else likes it. It's one of those. And sometimes I have to make that argument to Howard in the studio. And the fact that it went through all these permutations to get there, all the weird down keying, I think when you listen, you'll hear it. It adds up to a particular ambiance which is really unique. In Pumpkin's World. So please enjoy the Canary Trainer.
8: On the try, fetch the rain that was drunk
6: of mile and me. Embedded tears is
8: it's all the crumbs, it's ever. Is i
4: Welcome back, music fans. You just listened to The Canary Trainer off of the Autumn album. Billy, in segment one, you were talking about the song, Canary Trainer replaced a song called X-Ray, which was completely taken off the album. So I'm just kind of curious, not so much to know what was going on with that song, but what goes through your mind as an artist when you're deciding to completely get rid of a song? Does it—is it a struggle? Is it difficult? Are you considering it like one of your creations, like it's your child? Do you think that maybe you can use the song later? Like what's going through your mind when you're trying to decide, hey, should it stay or should it go?
6: Love that question. And it's not easy to answer, but to be simple about it, it's always a struggle because you have a song in a particular position because you at some point felt it had an upside. And then after throwing it against the wall about 15 times and losing your mind, you start to decide it has no upside. And the other thing is, is there's no calculus by which you can determine whether or not you're right or wrong. To use a quick example, one of fans' favorite songs is a song called Set the Ray to Jerry, which Flood hated and did not make the Melancholy album. Looking back, I still don't think it belonged in the Melancholy album. I think Flood made the right decision. But it's reasonable to think how such a good song, A, didn't make the record, and B, ended up on a B-side that was recorded very, very quickly because we had no studio time. Instead of getting the full um, brass treatment. Those are really tough decisions and are ultimately sort of an impulsive emotional decision. I would akin it quickly to when you're breaking up with somebody, obviously you're in the relationship because you thought there was love there and you were going to stay together forever. You wouldn't have started the whole dang thing. So when you're breaking up, you're having those mixed emotions of like, well, there's the good day and the bad day. Well, it's the same thing with songs. And uh, as you go down the road, I think it actually becomes more difficult because there's this constant pressure to sort of live within the shadow of what's already been created. And so oftentimes you're kicking stuff off, which is really good, but not because it's bad, but because it's sort of too familiar. That always is a red flag to me of like, there's probably not a real big upside here if it's too familiar. And I know that's something that sends uh, the Siamese zombies over the over the cliff, like, oh, if you just let let that music breathe again, everything would be great and, and everybody would love the band. In fact, that's one of the things I want to talk about today, but, but please uh, pick it up from there.
5: I was going to segue into that a little bit before, because right before we took that little intro to the last song you talked about, you don't really care, this is one of the songs you love. I was going to say, is there a, I don't really care, this is a song I hate that you have, where you just, without really, I mean, you never want to bury something that somebody else might have a, a deep connection to. But is there something where you're just like, I just don't get it?
6: No, it's, uh, it would be more along the lines of like, yeah, it's good, but it ain't that good. There are pumpkin songs that people really, really love. And I'm like, yeah, it's good. And it ain't that good. I look at Jimmy and Jimmy's like, yeah, it, it, ain't, it ain't all that. There have been instances because of other sort of fan weird agendas where they've tried to prop up particular songs because of James's association with a particular song to sort of make some case that I was insane and trying to take credit for things. And this is old fan narratives that sort of still linger around the edges. Yeah, that kind of sends me in a particular direction and maybe it dovetails into the discussion that I want to have. I was talking with Corrine, who's been a guest on the podcast twice, and if you, if you haven't heard Corrine uh, Luxon, she runs uh, social media and marketing. Uh, really good episodes with Corrine, so I recommend you go back and listen to those if you haven't heard those. Corrine was talking about how her being more in public now has led to a new round of bullying her online. It's so odd, right? And I don't necessarily want to dive into that in per se. I want to talk about it more ephemerally we were talking recently about elephants in the room, right? So you have like the elephants in the, in the pumpkins fan community are those fans who are stuck on a, on a period of the past. You know, the band hasn't been good since Pick Your Year. And we talked about that's a lot of fan communities. That's not just the Smashing Pumpkins. And then we have sort of like, let's call it classic clout chasing in internet culture where people make their reputations by being the meanest pitbull in the chat room and stuff like that. And then you have people like Kareem who've actually made a life and living out of translating her fandom and her appreciation of the band into something that is not only tangible and helps the band in a very complicated modern world vis-a-vis merchandise and marketing, but secondarily, she's bringing in new generations of fans to the band. Like, who wouldn't want to celebrate that? But there are fans who cannot accept that exchange because it must be tainted or there must be something wrong. So the the easiest thing they can do is attack me or attack Kareen Kareen was telling me that in some of these, uh, in some of these chat uh, forums that she's uh, privy to, recent criticism is levied at me and her. She said, there's almost no criticism of uh, other band members. And I guess what I'm trying to do is I don't want to get into that because it's kind of boring and, and it's a little too inside baseball, but let's just say, let's just kind of set that up as a frame. And then over here, talk about what we were talking about with Canary Trainer, which is the expectations of someone in the crowd of how someone like me is supposed to behave. Obviously here I'm talking autobiographically and not of the story, but let's keep it to the story because I think that's a little bit more interesting. So Shiny steps out of a ship and then you have this young person who's never met him, who's really disappointed that he's not willing to sacrifice his life again (laughs) to uh, take on the man, in this case, the X and I, right? As we talk about my life, Somewhat autobiographically, and then in the avatar that is Billy Corgan, everything from me standing somewhere in Disney World holding my kids' hands, trying to explain to a, four soccer moms why I don't really want to take a picture when there's 3,000 people walking past, to the guy who's disappointed that Set the Ray to Jerry isn't on melancholy, to you know what I mean? If there's, there's a sort of thing there, and I guess I'm trying to tee it up as a miasmic concept to look at because this is some of the, the themes that the album approaches, which is the expectation of the crowd, right? and then the expectation of the artist. That's a sort of a well-worn theme, and it's easy to talk about. But I want to take it one step higher, which is now we're entering into a world, what I call a post-truth world, which is what's actually happened matters less than what sticks. For example, there was a clip on the internet going around the other day where it was Joe Biden, maybe from 10 years ago, obviously the president of the United States, basically saying, it might have been 15 years ago, basically saying, we all know marriage is between a man and a woman. If there was a clip of me saying that from 15 years ago, I'd probably get canceled. But because he's president of the United States, and by the way, I don't believe that. I think gay marriage is fantastic. But you have a clip of the president of the United States from 15 years ago, whatever, saying, we all know marriage is between a man and a woman, like basically arguing against gay marriage. People who see that, if they're on one particular side of the aisle, will go into cognitive dissonance and basically rationalize, well, he's evolved. And you you know what I'm saying? We're we're in this pro-truth world that's like, If I need this person to be this way, I will make excuses and I will sort of dance around the light instead of just dealing with the fact of what we see. I'm a person who's okay with being transparent. That's what I do here every week on this podcast. You have people who have learned to weaponize the light bending and the narrative bending because it's in their best interest to say, oh, I was that, now I'm this, but let's just move on and look the other way. And then you have the expectations of the crowd who want to stick you with things which don't have anything to do with you, and if you can't power past it, like you don't have the media behind you, uh, which I generally haven't had the media behind me, you're kind of held up to a standard which isn't very realistic. And let me, let me say something that's completely self-serving because it brings it back to the kind of the heart of the matter. Uh, and then I want to talk about uh, the, the author of uh, the, you know, the Willy Wonka books, Roald Dahl. The Smashing Pumpkins is inarguably a Generation X band. We started in the eighties, but you know, commonly people say you're from the nineties, but we did start in the eighties, but okay. You're a nineties band colloquially put who were those other bands, Green Day, Nirvana into Foo Fighters, Hole, Nine Inch Nails, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Limp Bizkit at the end, uh, Lincoln park, a lot of great legendary rock and roll, uh, Hall of Fame worthy bands. There's no argument against the credit. Now hit pause to quote Pat Kenny. And look right now, creatively, artistically, just take that generation of bands because it's the most fair comparison that, I'm, that I can make. We could get into a wider thing, but it gets too confusing because I don't have enough cursory knowledge, but certainly have cursory knowledge of the bands of my generation. No one is doing what the Smashing Pumpkins is doing. I'm not even saying that's a good idea. Putting out 33 songs, 43 on the box set, doing a podcast about it, doing crazy shows, soccer dad wearing makeup on stage all of it right like i'm not saying it's a good idea i'm saying is you can at least see within the realm of who we are and what we are that we're trying to do something which is very unusual and then you see a fan community that's stuck in 1993 or 1985 attacking kareen for trying to market the band of young people you understand it, it, the gulf is so wide and so ridiculous so you look for answers I'm not going to sit here and and whine and say, you know, the media should be kinder to the Smashing Pumpkins. That's not not what I'm after. What I'm trying to say is we're all essentially in the cursory knowledge to understand that the Pumpkins isn't going to get the five-star review in the UK Guardian paper or something, right? It's just, we're not one of those bands. You have to take the band on its own sort of term at this point because it is what it is. Like, why is a band, you know, in their 50s doing 33 songs or 43 on the box set? Why Why is all that happening? Because it tells a story and it tells a story about us. And you see, and you guys are in contact with it because you do this podcast with me, you see where people continually try to bend that story to fit a narrative, which not only is not even relevant, it's not even of this century. It's not even close to the dynamics of this century. The dynamics in 1993 were completely different vis-a-vis radio, vis-a-vis marketing, vis-a-vis advertising, vis-a-vis media, vis-a-vis MTV, all of it is completely different, completely different set of dynamics. Okay. Completely different set of dynamics. And if you want to pick on it, everything from a pop star with 45 producers and 45 writers to just Billy in the bedroom with an out of tune guitar. I mean, you pick whatever angle you want. I'm not here trying to push that story on you. So why are you trying to push that story back on us? Or by extension, somebody like Corrine. And I'm not out here to defend Corrine. I'm saying is, We literally come on this podcast and transparently talk about what's happening, and you see where people don't want to deal with it because it's not the narrative that they're after. And this is what I mean by a post-truth world. You can literally show a clip of the president of the United States arguing against gay marriage, and you can literally have people go, oh, it's not important because it just doesn't sort of work in their thing. Okay, I'll stop there because I want to talk about Roald Dahl real quick.
5: Well, I was going to do a quick little defense of this, too, because here's the honest thing. You know, we work with you on a daily basis, both here wrestling all over the course of the thing. And you and I, I don't always see eye to eye with you. I disagree. But at the end of the day, this is the thing I tell wait, people. Wait, what
6: do you disagree with me
5: on? No, no. Just sometimes we'll have a, a differ of opinion. But here's the thing at the end of the day. And this is in defense of what you just said, whether people like it or not, because sometimes it does annoy the shit out of me, too, is. You have been successful for 30 years in multiple fields. You mentioned all these bands that are still not putting out new music that people remember from what they did before. And you're still creating, you're still doing this. Regardless of if I agree with something, when you say, hey, let's do this, let's do that, boom, 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 it doesn't matter because you've had 30 years of proven expertise where no matter what somebody's told you isn't going to work is obviously working because we're here right now talking about this. So no matter what somebody says and says, I disagree with how you guys are pushing a band and modern thing, why are you trying to get new fans, why are you trying to do this? It's freaking working, obviously, because we're here right now talking about it. So you can't argue with success, right or wrong, agree or disagree. You've been a success and we're still here today.
6: But here, let me say one thing. Yes, it's working. But secondarily, I don't presume I'm right. Does that make sense?
5: Oh, we, I know yes, that. Yes, I've there seen are that resu- plenty of times.
6: Yes, there are results, but I'm willing to accept that I'm still not going the right way. That's the argument of a free mind. A defending mind needs to sort of defend something that doesn't need defense. That's sort of like, let's call it part A of what I want to get at. Part B is it came out in this last week or so in the news that the estate of Roald Dahl, who wrote, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Giant, Giant Peach, I don't know, I don't know that one as well, but...
4: James and the Giant Peach. James and the Giant Peach, yeah. Thank you. Ding, ding. Thank you. James Eha. No, no,
6: no, not James Eha that's, and the that's Giant That's different, different James. <laughs> James is a sweet peach. That's a different story. Um, Ooh. <laughs> it's come out that the estate of Roald Dahl in the UK has allowed the UK publisher to start rewriting the books into more sensitive, woke language. Uh, Augustus Gloop is no
4: longer fat. He's something else. He's enormous, which is so much more derogatory. I don't understand how you could leave the word enormous, but take the word fat out. F- enormous seems like that's a life sentence. Fat, you can at least lose.
5: I was obese in high school, and if you called me enormous, I would have a much brighter personality. It doesn't I, make sense. I'd be funnier than I am now, because you'd be killing me inside.
6: Well, I appreciate what you're saying, but that's not really the point that I'm after. First of all, you have a dead artist who— left an incredible legacy of work, and had a complicated life. And like Walt Disney, there are detractors because of things that Roald Dahl did in the span of that life that people are uncomfortable with. But it hasn't stopped people from making movies. Heck, there was a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory theater, live theater show that I saw once in London, and it was terrible. The point is, is Roald Dahl's properties are going to continue. I'm not going to try to make this personal about the family because I can't speak to what the family decision is to, to allow this to happen. Other publishers in Europe have come out and said, we're not going to change the subtext. The books are just fine. But I'm going to sort of speak about it now in the personal, which is like, I'm super uncomfortable with the idea that after I die, my children or their children will allow somebody to censor, alter, or turn me into something that I wasn't. So I want to be on the public record, which is don't mess with my work after I go. I'm willing to stand behind it, good and bad. And secondarily, don't allow me to become an object of somebody else's political football thing. I, I don't, I want out of that. I, I'm willing to stand with who I am today and you can judge me on that, just like you can judge Walt Disney or Roald Dahl. I'm okay with the complicated legacy of my life because at some point I realized that most of the people pushing that type of stuff are not pure themselves. And secondarily, their agendas are based on power and control. They're not based on actually purifying the world into a better place. Because if I truly believed that changing fat to enormous in one of Roald Dahl's books was going to make the world a better place, I'd be all for it, but I don't buy it because I'm a person who's studied human nature my whole life, and I don't see where suddenly everybody's going to get along because you change a word in a book. I grew up hearing about the Nazis throwing books in a pile. I grew up hearing about people throwing the Beatles records in a, in a pyre because John Lennon compared the band to Jesus and how ridiculous that looks in 2023 hindsight. But there was a time where a lot of people— refused to play the Beatles because John Lennon said something. Because there was a time where people refused to play Elvis' records because he shook his hips on television. And there was a time where if you were a certain color, you weren't allowed to ride in the, in the front of the bus. I mean, there are times where just because the mob thinks it's a good idea is historically proven not a good idea. All you got to do is read about the Salem Witch Trials to know how easy human behavior can flip based on suspicion and innuendo. So I'm not sure how to put all the pieces of that discussion together, but let's surmise it with this way. And it goes back to the analogy that I used last week about if you see a boot on the road, you know, split them in half with an axe or light them on fire. It's a famous uh, Buddhistic uh, koan. The idea here is just like, look, if I'm your hero or I'm your zero, first of all, great. Like, thanks. It's an honor to be either the object that you hold up or the object you squash under your boot. That means I've done something. (laughs) Like, You know what I mean? Because there's billions of people that pass through the gates of this planet that no one cares to lift up or push down. So I'll take it as an honor, no matter which way you want to push me. If you need to twist and alter my visage, my words, my thinking, including ignoring what I'm saying through this microphone to you on a weekly basis, because you need some other thing of me or from me or from Pumpkin's World, as I like to say, have at it, enjoy. All I'm going to say is I'm going to sit here and be a consistent voice through my work and say, I'm not really comfortable with what that all looks like. And I'm not here to ring a bell like, you know, the fascist gates have opened. I think those gates may be opened 50 years ago and we just didn't know. So that's a different argument. What I'm trying to say is when you're in there and you're obsessing over the Star Wars movie that didn't get released or the pumpkin song that should have been on the album, or how the band should have quit after 1999 or whatever, okay? You're still obsessing over something that is not of your creation. And as a creator type in this world, the kindest thing I can say to you is, is try creating something yourself. Try making the world a better place. And even if you fail, you will have made the world a better place because you will be off of somebody else's you-know-what and onto your own. And that's just some spiritual advice from somebody who looks at the world every day. Obsessing over Roald Dahl's books isn't going to change a dang thing. And for those who think it will, it's a sad, sad thing to watch. Because, first of all, he had to create something to be criticized. He had to create something that's actually worth tearing apart and trying to put back together. But if you think that you're going to sort of get under the hood and get into the brilliance of a creator type like a Roald Dahl— good and bad, and understand the motivations and understand why he chose that word fat on that day in 1966 or whatever he when he wrote the line. Put yourself back in their shoes in that moment in that set of decisions. I'm not saying don't judge artists. That's not the argument I'm making. But let the work of an artist stand for what it is. If you think that by altering it, you don't lessen the power, you don't understand why art works. It's a holographic thing. It's put together with a miasmic set of influences, which unless you've really been in there in that Charlie chocolate factory like I have, you don't really understand that so many of the decisions come from so many different places. And the fact that a particular voice can resonate to so many and just is often repelled more like I have, you don't really understand the nature of attraction, the nature of culture, and the nature of conversational Dialogue between peoples as time immemorial moves
5: forward. Thank you. I think that's a hell of a segue into the next song. No, too. I, want you,
6: I want you to tell me what you disagree with me on, Kyle. That's what I want to know.
5: What I disagree with you? Sometimes, obviously, you're a rock star. You've had you've had a world, and there's days where Jesus is about to get real personal right now. There's days where we will wake up and we'll have a plan, and everything will be set in motion. You'll be like, you know what, guys? This is what we're doing now, and it all goes out the window. We can't talk about this right here, right now. But we had like a three-hour-long conversation with you the other day, and then we got a call from somebody else in their world, and they go, "What's going on in August and September with you guys? Such and such may be happening." And we're like, "He never even told us that."
6: <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, but
5: and we can't talk about
4: it here. Okay, but, but you're blaming me you're blaming close, for something possibly.
6: somebody else did. Okay, so just <laughs> no,
5: I'm not.
4: <laughs> Boy, Kyle, you're just so good at digging your own grave here. Somebody's got to dig it for me
5: because, you know, I don't plan on having a lot of people at my funeral.
6: I will put some flesh on this bone because I think I know what you're talking about. And if it isn't, don't say it isn't. Just play along. (laughs) There's some touring options on the table for the Smashing Pumpkins come this summer. And the tour wound right around into NWA 75, which will be happening in St. Louis at the end of August, which has been our traditional home for our anniversary show. And I literally had to send an email and say, I am not available on these four dates because of this possible touring. So that may have been some of the pressure you're receiving, but it wasn't coming from me. Let's
4: move on. Okay. <laughs> really quick, Billy, before before we yes, jump sir. off, I know we want to go into the next song, and it's it's a big song, and it's off of Melancholy, <laughs> and I know people are excited to hear it. But I'm starting to see, because you, you see the censorship that's been going on. It's, it's really not anything. It is new, but I think the tide is beginning to turn. I feel like a lot of people are starting to push back against all of this censorship of artists and stuff. I'm starting to see it. It's not just you on this podcast. You're starting to see it in other forms of media, artists standing up and saying that this isn't right. Do you think that the, this is – there's just – this kind of thing happens in waves. We see it in our culture, just like you said, burning of books and burning of Beatles albums and things like that. Are we starting to come down the other side of that wave, do you think?
6: Yes, but I think there's a deeper um... – Energy at work, which is that Western society as a whole has lived for so long off the land that people have lost the ability to understand how fragile the ecosystem of Western culture is, because we're so used to the trains running on time. You plug in your, uh, you know, your iPad and the little ding goes off because it's charging. We're so used to that. Our grandparents. I see my grandparents, I can't necessarily say yours did, but my grandparents who, who fought in World War II saw the evils of the world in their face. There was no getting around that. I had three grandfathers, two blood and one step, and two of the three fought in World War II. Both were completely changed by the experience. My maternal grandfather was a decorated hero in that sense. Uh, I, have the, I have the article to prove it. But he was a changed person. Now, how much was he changed? I don't know, because I, didn't, I was a little kid, and I didn't have access to his mind. But I certainly saw the effects of what that world did to him. If it broke his heart, well, you know, I don't know. But I'm saying I felt something. What am I after? When you've seen the worst of the world, you're not in a big hurry to mess with things that don't need to be messed with. And as I said on our prior podcast, if you believe a system, and I'm going to say this very generally. People in power are fine with oppressing people below them because it's good for business. That's just the way the world works going back to before the Bible, right? It's just the way the world works. Kings like to put their thumb on their subjects' heads because they can get more tax revenue or whatever. Is it inarguable that a certain class of people in this country for a very long period of time oppressed a certain other group of people because it was good for them for their own self-interest? Yes. So are there systems still in place that need to be examined, possibly torn down, and rebuilt to make this country, in particular America, a place for everybody to have an equal opportunity to, in essence, fulfill the, the mandate that it is a country built on equal opportunity? In essence, does something need to be torn down so that mandate come true? I think you can make a pretty good argument that it does. But when you tear things down thinking that in the absence of something, that what will replace it will be an improvement, that historically does not work. And that's where you get complicated. So when you start sort of sending a, a public message that art is dangerous, art. Art, just art, a painting. And go look at the historical parallels where the Nazis classified a segment of the population as degenerate artists. They actually had shows. The Nazis had shows where they showed the art that you weren't supposed to look at and they made money off it. And then they privately sold the paintings and made money off the degenerate paintings. (laughs) Okay? There's some contradiction in there. What I'm trying to say is, if you think by classifying, this is bad, this is good, and what will replace it is going to be better, that's just not historically how it's worked out. So I'm very, very suspicious of people who want to eradicate something thinking that what will come will be of a higher octave of spiritual yearning and togetherness. No, it's just, it's just a different set of power dynamics. And why not just call the power dynamics out for what they were or are? Like, hey, you want to run this block, all of the mobs in Chicago in 1920s? Well, that's just the way it goes down. I get that part of it. But the fancy language around it all, justifying why you know enormous is better than fat, and you guys laughing about it? I mean, do you understand the hypocrisy of it all? It's like somebody sat in a meeting and they threw around words on a board to decide what was a better word than fat. That's total insanity. And if you think I'm insane for saying that, I'm okay with you thinking I'm insane. I guess that's the point of this entire segment. If you need
5: to, enormous.
6: Well, if you need me or someone like me to be something to justify your position, okay, I get that. But if I'm doing it in the world and I don't need you to be something to justify my position, shouldn't that ring a bell for you? That somebody who's actually amassed power, and I don't have a tremendous amount of power, but I've amassed some. If I don't need to push you down or push you around to get where I'm going, why do you need to do that to me or Roald Dahl or Walt Disney or whatever? Why not just let it be what it is and you choose how you want to interface with it? This need to amend and augur what exists. We're not even talking about contemporary work. We're talking about the past, right? The need to auger history. What's the famous saying? And it's the way to go out. History is for those who write it or something like that. So write your history of me however you like. It doesn't really affect me. (laughs) That's kind of what I'm saying. And if you think it does, if you think it's going to alter my pursuit, you're wrong about how someone like me operates. In essence, you don't really understand what makes someone like me tick. Because if it was about money and all the other stuff, we wouldn't be sitting here doing this podcast. And if you think it is, like, you don't understand the dynamics of that business either. That's kind of what's funny to me. Being transparent in the music business is the worst thing you can do. It's the complete opposite of what most people want. MTV Cribs, that's all you need to know. We could be doing MTV Cribs and not talking about Osira being disappointed in the robot. Okay, when we come back, a song, I can't I can't use uh, the real title. An ode to no one, as it's referred to nicely,
5: when we come back. F you
6: now you're gonna have
5: rude oh i see what you did there
6: yeah well i did explain to my kid that he could refer to the f word as a way to point out that somebody shouldn't use the f word but he can't use the f word but But you used it in the you know you used it in the incorrect form you see you
4: made people think of the word hold on let's take a quick break and then we'll dive into that right after this
7: Go to Nix.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's
2: hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos.
3: And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great.
2: Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list.
3: We'll also have guests join us Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome back, music fans! You just listened to an ode to no one, parenthetically, f you, off of the Melancholy and Infinite Sadness album. I'll, I'll be well, you able to f- talk you at some f- point that today. Up. You f that intro up? Oh my gosh! <laughs> hey, why not take a- f it? Let's go with it. Nah, all right, all right, all right. fine. I, I have no problem with it. Uh, I'm only human, and my allergies are really kicking in today, and I'm realizing it at this point. But anyways, a an note, an ode to no- Jesus. <laughs> now you've offend- okay. Well, no, now right. you've offended we're on the Christ. subject matter. I even that's been fine
5: so let's talk about the song title because that's the other thing is we're trying not to say the full thing i was online i somehow ended up on reddit still don't know how it works but there was a debate on there about like berenstein berenstein did the song originally have the full title somebody remembers it being on an album they bought when they were a kid other people are like i think it's on a reissue the entire i'm not going to say it here because we, we're a family-friendly podcast but the fu before ode to no one which is it is it the full title is it just an ode to no one which came first the chicken or the egg
6: well, you know me, I spend countless hours trying to solve Reddit arguments because um <laughs> it reminds me of like when I'm in a restaurant and somebody comes up and they're obviously not a fan and I don't need to designate why I I know they're not a fan. And they go, "Uh, are you uh are you that guy from the pumpkins?" And I've learned to say, "Why?" Well, and they point to, you know, a bunch of guys in khaki shorts and baseball hats. Me and my friends over there were trying to solve a, a debate and we had a bet on it so you you help us solve the bet <laughs> nothing dehumanizing there uh can you help us solve this bet of who you are can you basically just be wikipedia <laughs> yeah well less than my Jeez. favorite too is when i see them uh, googling my picture you know because i i'm obviously not 25 anymore so they're trying to like see how i look today i'm not fat <laughs> no
5: you're not you're not enormous either
6: but I'm fatter. I'm fatter than I was. <laughs> I'm enormous. I actually am enormous. You, you guys can attest to that. I am a big i am a He's big a tall
5: person. dude. You're taller than you should be in my eyes, and it's bothersome to me as a short man.
6: You carry your shortness well. Let's talk about <laughs> the song. <laughs> We're having a little fun here today on the podcast. Hope you don't mind. It's uh, Joe, Joe's, uh, Joe's clubhouse. The original title of the song was fully voiced, obviously, FU. When it came time to put it on the record, I thought, oh, this is going to be a problem. So hence the title, F.U., An Ode to No One, because I figured we could always defer to An Ode to No One if for some reason the song became a single or something like that, which in the crazy days of melancholy, anything seemed possible, including having a ridiculous song like this be um, be a hit, because <laughs> uh, we had hits with other ridiculous songs. little backstory on the, on the recording. Flood liked the idea of us coming into Pumpkinland, which was our rehearsal space that Flood turned into a sort of recording studio where we recorded much of Melancholy. He liked the idea of every day of us coming into rehearse, and at the end of rehearsal, after he'd warmed up for 45 minutes, he would have us play this song two or three times and record it until we finally nailed a version that he liked, because he wanted the full intensity of the band live, which I think we eventually got there. Uh, certainly one of Jimmy Chamberlain's favorite songs to play live. I tend not to play it as much anymore as I used to because it tears the you know what out of my voice. It's a crazy song to sing. All that said, I do love playing it. It's a totally fun song to play, and I think the message is pretty clear. (laughs) It's like stay away from me, which dovetails into today's subject matter, which is if I'm with my kids, no, I don't want to take a picture. If I'm at a if I'm at a sports bar, no, I don't want to solve your khaki bet. No, I don't like golf. I mean, you know what I'm saying, like. We can solve all those problems today. And the way we can solve them is I just play this recording and hopefully they'll understand that they need to stay away from me.
5: I like it. And also the thing about this song is it's got an aggressiveness to it. And as I was reading into how you went about recording this, literally it was the point where you had told one outlet, I played until my fingers saw blood. You can't play weak guitar solos. Also, some of these lyrics just hit me in a very, very, very strong way. And I I mean, I don't even know what some of this even means, but for the most part, uh, Took a Virgin Mary axe to a sweet baby, Jane. Destroy the mind, destroy the body, but you cannot destroy the heart. Again, as I'm a guy going through things, a lot this really hits me. The body and face and soul of you has gone down that deep black hole. Can you again, as I've asked in the past, put yourself in the position you were when you were writing and recording this and the person you were then as opposed to now?
6: Oh yeah. No, he's very much alive. (laughs) Trust me, um, the bastard in me, uh, bastard son of a bastard son, I'm very much alive. I think that with art, form follows function. You show me a world that wants this type of music, I'll give it to you. The, the world since 1995 has gotten more sensitive, more don't step on my, my digital toes. And look, I'm not talking about being kind. I'm a person who was raised with manners. I think you should go through life to the best of your ability to be kind to others, especially strangers. I understand when people meet me, they don't always see me as a stranger, but to most of them, I am a stranger, but they do not treat me like a stranger. They treat me like a a canary in a cage. You reminded me of a couple things. A, in talking about the lyric, and I should have thought about this when I, and maybe this was unconsciously why I chose the song, destroy the body, destroy the mind, but you can't destroy the heart, whatever the lyric is. That is exactly what I'm trying to say and why I'm a better musician than I am a, a, a podcast host. This is what I'm trying to say about artists. If you've got enough of a mind and a body and a heart to, like, Picasso create—I can't say the word right—Gernicia, which is his famous anti-war work, or Roald Dahl creating, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. If you've got that in you to create, shouldn't you get a little benefit of the doubt? (laughs) Because there's obviously deeper forces at work in there some society or some governmental society came out this week and identified Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, as one of the books that, uh, or, or, or authors that white supremacists read. So we need to look at Tolkien's work because white supremacists are identifying with the work. I mean, do you understand how ridiculous that is? So because a group of people identify with a certain author's work, long dead, now we have to sort of Think twice about reading Tolkien. By the way, remember those billion-dollar movies that they made? So we've gone from billion-dollar movies, every kid reading Tolkien, wanting to get the ring, and Frodo, and Gollum, to, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be paying attention to Tolkien. So back to the lyric. If you think, and this goes to the heart of Autumn, if you think by erasing what's been said, or done, or created, by an alpha creator, and when I say alpha, I'm not talking about male, I'm talking about the energetic alpha energy, as it's commonly referred to, male and female, or other gender, if that's how you identify. If you are one of those creator types, and you think, I'm talking about you, certain person behind the keyboard, that by changing a word, or erasing their books, or burning, or deleting the files, we're sending shiny into space that you are going to erase where they came from. You're so It's so laughably dumb and mistaken, but yet here we are actually talking about it. And why are we talking about it? Because you have weaponized a group of people, in many cases a minority, 5%, 7%, 12%, who think if they throw their weight around in a particular way, that they, by erasing these voices, are going to make room for other voices and therefore change the dynamics of the world. It's so laughable, and yet here we are at this level of insanity. Like, we haven't learned the lesson of Orwell. Now, many people believe that Orwell had access to British Secret Services and whether he was in the British Secret Service and he was ex-military and stuff like that, and that 1984 wasn't just a visionary thing that he thought up sitting in his English cottage, but he had insider information that somebody in the 40s or whatever, 30s, tipped off Orwell and said, this is where the world is going. And there are speeches that people gave as far back as the 30s that mapped out, however crudely, the world we currently live in. What people would commonly refer to as a technocratic society, where AI systems, robotics, and the, the way we'll communicate in the future will allow a greater level of control. Well, here we are. We talk routinely on this podcast, but certainly in common American Western culture, people are talking about Elon Musk and Twitter and this and who should be that and who regulates in Section 230, which is the governmental thing that I think indemnifies groups like Facebook away from being sued because they're not publishers and all this complicated stuff which all boils down to the same thing who has the right to say it and when can they say it and if we accept the idea of and i've said this before the idea of hey you shouldn't yell fire in a crowded theater let's call it like acceptable general things and then even in today's world i'm okay with the idea that there are certain words that should not be in common usage like I think that's a generational thing that we got to kind of look at language and say, okay, these words sort of don't work anymore. There are words in this culture that I hear routinely that I'm uncomfortable with. If that sounds like privilege, I don't understand what privilege is because if I'm uncomfortable with it, and I supposedly am in, in, the, in the group that has the most privilege, I mean, I want those words gone. They make me uncomfortable because they remind me of things that I don't want to. Now if, now, if a certain group wants to utter those words because it makes them Feel empowered? Well, that's a a case that they can make. But I can sit here and say, I'm uncomfortable with those words. But do I want them banned? Do I want people banned for uttering them? No. But can we have a discussion about how we need to change language as we go to maybe make the world a kinder, better place? But if you think by going back into a book that's 60 years old and removing the word fat from the book is going to make this world a better place, I mean, do you know how this world works? Do you know there are places on this planet that still have slavery? There are still cultures in this world that have legal slavery, which you go to bed every night. Many people in this
4: country benefit from.
6: Okay, I don't even know it.
5: Okay. I wear
4: a lot of clothing.
6: Okay, so let's stop. Let's hit pause. Let's just look at that thing for one moment, and we don't need to belabor it because it's a perfect illustration. I'm talking on a device to you right now which may have been made by not slave labor, but let's call it pretty close to slave labor. We put our heads on our pillows, not knowing where those pillows were made. This is kind of going back to what I'm trying to say. And it's not, I'm not chicken little here. I'm just talking. We live in a very incredibly complicated, diverse society, which if you look at the history of the world, this country in particular, we've never had it better. If you're an artist, you have the ability to upload a song for free on a public access portal of which I have plenty of criticism for those companies, but you have the ability to load up a song and have the whole world hear your song within 24 hours. That is incredible power. If you're not using that power, you're missing something. And I'm not saying that's what you should do, but I'm saying that power exists for everybody. And yet we bog down into like what Roald Dahl wrote in a book 60 years ago. We're not even talking about like a a word that we know commonly is, is derogatory, we're talking we're arguing about words that just make people uncomfortable. Well isn't that the point of art to make you uncomfortable? Not to provoke you into a negative set of feelings but to examine your world. As I've used the case before, if I made you uncomfortable with the lyric, how do you know as you know with the autumn I'm playing characters, how do you know that's not the character speaking, a fictional character? So when Nicholas Cage holds the gun up in the in the movie and he's playing the bad guy, is Nicholas Cage the bad guy? Are we into that level of stupidity? No. So why are we into this other level of stupidity? So if you're okay with putting your head on your Western pillow and listening to your digital white noise as you drift off to a perfect sleep, and then you get up in the morning and you take whatever, you take uh, nootropics you know, to fire your brain up, and then you jump on your thing and you read about Elon Musk's neural links that he's going to put in your brain so you can download your porn quicker straight into your cerebral cortex. If that's the world you're after, While at the same time you ignore there are people on this planet in literal slavery and you're okay with that. And your focus is whether or not what I'm being or doing or saying, you understand why me as an artist thinks this like the level it's it's so funny. It's not even funny. Like uh, I'm laughing at you. It's like funny. Like it's a level of absurdity. I can't even wrap my head around, but here we are, which is why an album like autumn exists to address the uncomfortable space of it is not unrealistic to understand that the narrative of shiny let's call it the digital exile or the literal exile of someone like shiny we're there it's set in the future but we're there now okay here's the out here's the finish as we would say in wrestling okay here's the one two three no less than a contributing guest commentator I should have my research in front of me, but I'm just going to sort of say it like if we were sitting around a table, wrote an article or an opinion piece in Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone, the same magazine that put me on the cover, twice. That magazine, a gentleman wrote an article arguing, saying cancel culture is a good thing. That's the purpose of the article. Cancel culture is good. We should celebrate cancel culture, and it said in the article, not only should we not run from cancel culture, and the term cancel culture, we should double down, and we should reclaim the word and say it's a good thing. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you think cancel culture is a good thing, you don't know anything about me as a person. So Rolling Stone magazine, the anti-authoritarian magazine that was formed with the Grateful Dead as the ethos of how you should live, literally, that's how the magazine was formed his love of people like the Grateful Dead's life and how they expressed themselves, and they were against, quote-unquote, the man. And here we are, 50-something years later, and you got people writing articles saying, cancel culture is good. So that's it. That's what Autumn is there for. It's a little bookmark here in time. You can look backwards and say, ah, it's a little hyperbolic what you're after. But you look forward, and we don't necessarily have to live in the future, but if you want to play that game, Everything I talk about in Autumn is not only here but is is on its way. What happens to Billy is irrelevant because there's always going to be another Billy and there's always going to be another Kurt and there's always going to be another Courtney and there's always going to be another Trent. The kids are always going to take it on. So I don't I don't have any fear about that. Do I want to be erased into oblivion? No. Why? What do I get? <laughs> As I like to say, I'm not interested in being a dead hero, or in this case, a dead zero. I appreciate you listening to this podcast. I hope you learn something. And at the worst, I hope you learn what's good and bad about the world. Kyle's holding up a card that says moist. I don't know what that means. but what? Um,
5: That is the one word that needs to be canceled. I'm just going to put that out there. Oh. We can't say fat. We need to not be able to say
6: moist How anymore. do you describe it's a delicious disgusting.
4: cake? Get out of here. Succulent. That's worse. That's your enormous... <laughs>
6: succulent conjures up all the wrong
4: images wow anywho succulent thanks for listening to 33 with William Patrick Corgan ladies and gentlemen we'll be back next week where Kyle will Kyle into oblivion (laughs) we can only hope
0: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Do you love Selena?
0: Like, really
2: love?
7: Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano.